Hi there. You're listening to Lindisfarne Anglican Church's Sermon Podcast, a place where you can hear God's Word preached if you weren't able to join us at one of our services during the week. My prayer for you today is that as you listen to this message, you'd be challenged, encouraged, and equipped to live as a disciple of Christ in the world. May God richly bless you as you listen to this message today. I wonder if you've ever uh, gone on like a team bonding thing at work or uh, maybe I remember this from my days growing up in youth group where you would play a trust game. Uh, uh, the one that sort of sticks out in my mind is the one where uh, you get blindfolded uh, and you have to sort of stand as rigidly as you can whilst two of your so-called friends uh, stand uh, in front of you and behind you and you then allow yourself to remaining stiff fall backwards and be caught by your friend and then you allow that friend to push you forward uh, whilst you remain uh, stiff uh, and they catch you and after each push back and forth your friends take a step back and back and back and your blindfolded stiff self falls further forward and further back uh, and at some point, you uh, bend your legs and bail out of that thing because at the end of the day, you trust yourself a lot more than these so-called friends or workmates of yours. Uh, trust is uh, an interesting thing, isn't it? It's uh, something that uh, we can't see. We can't see if we trust someone or if someone trusts uh, we, it's, not, it's not a physical thing, and yet it is such an uh, important and vital thing to just daily life. Uh, the di- dictionary defines trust as reliance on the integrity, strength, ability, surety of a person or thing. Uh, and to trust in something, the verb, is to rely upon or place confidence in, in someone or something. Uh, trust is the, the basis of action for all of life. And in fact, I remember hearing uh, one of Australia's leading economists, Professor Ian Harper, who's also a Christian, he gave a talk about how uh, the, the, the economy is actually built on trust. Uh, and without trust, uh, even the way we uh, uh, function in our day-to-day lives, spending money, buying things, selling things, all of that built on this intangible thing called trust. And of course, when there's no trust, things go horribly wrong, as we saw in things like the Banking Royal Commission. Trust is vitally important. And in our reading today, Jesus talks about the kind of behaviour we should live out if our trust is placed in the right place, in God, in our Heavenly Father. The flip side of not trusting in God, we see in uh, this passage as we unpack it, is to trust in other things, to trust in uh, human beings or to trust in money. But what we have here in these 34 verses is an invitation for us to go deeper in our trust of God. Let's uh, have a look at this reading. We saw, uh, firstly, uh, the first part that Anthony read, verses 1 to 12. 
uh, an encouragement to us to trust God, not man, and to do what is right based on our trust of God. You'll remember, uh, if you can remember way back to when we were last in Luke uh, late last year, uh, that back in chapter 11, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and condemning them for their hypocrisy. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law, he said. And uh, his uh, instructions to his disciples, now he's turned from uh, uh, telling the Pharisees off, is uh, now to the disciples, and he says, don't be like them. Don't be like the Pharisees. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, verse 1, which is hypocrisy. You see, for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, their life had become about keeping up external appearances, making sure that everyone else knew how holy they were with no actual care for what was going on inside their hearts. And now Jesus turns his attention to his disciples and says, don't be like this. Don't be like this. Don't be uh, outwardly holy whilst inwardly uh, uh, full of bitterness, of uh, malice, of deceit, of hypocrisy. And of course, Jesus gives a warning to the disciples, doesn't he, about why hypocrisy is such a bad idea in verses 2 and 3. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. It's a futile task, this hypocrisy thing. For what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. They're rather confronting words from Jesus, aren't they? Your secrets will be out. Your two-faced back-chatting will be shouted from the rooftops that time you were nice to someone's face and then when they left the room and you started whining about them that's going to be out in the open for all to see and that sort of behavior is hypocritical it's pharisaical and in the end it's not going to stay nicely hidden away in some corner whilst everyone else thinks you're a good bloke no it's going to be found out it's going to be exposed. And God already knows. So Jesus says, instead of being a two-faced hypocrite like the Pharisee, trust God and do what is right. And how can we have the courage to do that? To be truthful. To, 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 to not be two-faced. Well, the answer is in verses 4 and 5, I think. Uh, have a look. Uh, Jesus says, I tell you, friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The fear of God is the starting point for living the kind of life that Jesus is calling us to. The kind of life that is anti uh, com the complete opposite of the Pharisees. In Proverbs, we read verse uh, 10 of chapter 9 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is a, a biblical idea that uh, understanding who God is and being rightly and properly afraid of his power and majesty and sovereign control of the world 
is the beginning place for, for wisdom. And for us, we see today, it's the beginning place for uh, living out our lives properly. It's the fear of man, isn't it, that leads us to that kind of hypocritical behaviour that we were talking about before. The fear of confrontation, the fear of uh, uh, having to have just a difficult uh, conversation with someone. These are, these are things that are hard to do and it's much easier to just be nice to their face and then whine about them later. But these are not the right things to be afraid of. Because all man can do, Jesus says, is kill your body. But God can kill you and send you to hell and that is truly scary. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because notice that having instructed us to be afraid, to have, have the right sort of fear, not of man but of God, in verses 6 and 7, so immediately following, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Get your fear right, but don't be afraid. Why? Because God cares deeply for us. You see that there, don't you, in verse 7? If you're a hypocrite and you carry on in that kind of life, be afraid. But if you're not, if you get your fear right and you trust in God, don't be afraid because God loves you and cares for you. He will help you and he will be with you. Don't be afraid. Instead, take heart and proclaim that you're on Jesus' team. And that's what Jesus says in verses 8 and 9, isn't it? I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. Fear of God, which leads to trust in his care for you, is not only the road to wisdom and the road to avoid to being a hypocrite, uh, to avoid being hypocrites. It's also the road to courageously living out your faith. There are a whole bunch of times, aren't there, where it can be tempting to deny that you're a Christian, that you're a follower of Jesus. Um, I know this all too well because I spend a, a large part of my life when I meet someone new hoping that somehow... Uh, we don't have the normal set of questions that get asked. Hi, what's your name, Chris? Oh, and what do you do? Because, like, straight away, I'm a minister of church, and we're right there. And, I, so, and, I, and, and often I think, wouldn't it be nice if, like, I could at least spend 10 minutes having a normal conversation with someone before they found out I was some sort of weird religious person, and a super weird one of that because I'm a priest. But, of course... It's actually a blessing because it means all my relationships start with my faith front and centre. But let me tell you, I understand that it's tempting to deny that we're followers of Jesus when we think, oh, I just want this person to like me for me. When we think we might get laughed at or mocked at, when we think our fr a friendship might be on the line. And it's, if you think it's bad for us, think about our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who uh, face loss of livelihood, job, even life because they claim the name of Jesus. 
The temptation to disown Jesus can be strong. And that's why we need to remember who to fear. Because if we remember that the worst any human being to us is simply kill our bodies, but God can send us to hell, then it makes the choice a little easier, doesn't it? Jesus promises if we are boldly proclaiming his name in all circumstances, uh, he'll never let us go. And in fact, Jesus promises in verses 11 and 12 that the Holy Spirit will embolden us to keep proclaiming the name of Jesus no matter what it costs. When you are brought before the synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And we only have to flip forward into part two of Luke's Gospel, which is the book of Acts, and see how this came Uh, This was true. Jesus' promise is true for for his first disciples. It's true for us. Stephen, in the end of chapter 6 and through chapter 7, finds himself before these synagogues, rulers and authorities, and the Spirit comes upon him and he boldly and fearlessly proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord, and he's stoned to death. But he's courageous in owning his faith. Because what's death to Stephen ultimately? It's just his body. Better to die and have Jesus say he's with me than to save your life on this earth only to lose it in the next. Well, I suppose you might be wondering what if you've failed to publicly acknowledge Jesus once or twice. Because it's hard. It's hard to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. It's hard to say you're on his team when sometimes it's easier to be silent. What if you can think of a time where you've not owned up? Does that mean you're destined to hell and when you get to heaven, Jesus is going to say, I don't know him. I remember that time at that party where he didn't say he was a Jesus guy. And after all, you'll notice I've skipped over verse 10, which says there is something that is unforgivable, doesn't it? Look at verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What on earth is that about? Well, first of all, we can use the Bible to help us have clarity about what Jesus means here. One of the principles of uh, seeking to understand hard bits of the Bible, like a verse that says there's this unforgivable sin, is to see what the rest of the Bible has to say. And we know that denying Jesus is not an unforgivable sin. Because, helpfully, we have this bloke called Peter in the Bible. And you'll know the story, won't you? Because uh, Peter, he's one of Jesus' closest disciples. Uh, At the end of Luke's Gospel, we read about how Jesus is arrested. He's taken before the authorities. And uh, people look at Peter and they go, Hey, you're with Jesus. And three times, Peter says, No, no, you've got the wrong guy. I'm just here for the ride. Three times Peter denies that he's a follower of Jesus because he's afraid of man. 
He's afraid of getting caught up in the, uh, the, the, the trial and the, and the ultimate death that he's watching his Lord, his, the one he's been following, uh, uh, be caught up in. He denies Jesus. And of course, if we read John's Gospel, we see that after the resurrection, as uh, Jesus and Peter are talking on the beach in John 21, Jesus asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And three times he says, yes. And Peter is restored and forgiven for that denial. So clearly, denying Jesus is forgivable if you repent and renew your trust and faith in God. Let me encourage you to do that if that's you here today. But what is this unforgivable sin? The sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. It's fair to say a lot of ink has been spilt over this verse. But to put it simply, I think, the work of the Spirit is to point us to Christ. Why are you here today? Ultimately, I think it's because the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, bringing you to this place so that you can hear the good news about Jesus proclaimed, that Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins and that you need to respond to him with faith and trust and live your life in obedience to his call on your life. It's the Holy Spirit that brings you here to hear it. It's the Holy Spirit that enables you to see Jesus clearly for who he truly is. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers you to live out your faith day by day. The work of the Holy Spirit is to continually point us to Christ, to show us who Christ is, to empower us to live as his people. The Spirit comes and convicts us of our sin. The Spirit comes and helps us to realise we need a great Saviour. And I think this unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Spirit, it, it, it only makes sense to me if it is the continual rejection of the Spirit's work in pointing you to Jesus. If you continue to hear about Jesus, but you say, no, nah, it's not for me. This is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I can remember a friend of mine at school. Uh, I've lost touch with him now, so uh, let's pray he's had a different outcome these days. But he knew the gospel. Like, he knew exactly uh, what Christians believed. Uh, He just thought it was nonsense. Just didn't believe it. Uh, so that's like it's nice I get it I get why you live the way you live and I understand that's what the Bible says but I just don't care if he continues to live his life knowing the gospel and continuing to reject it I think this is what this is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit you actually need to respond to the good news of salvation otherwise you won't be forgiven or saved So, God's in charge. More powerful than any human. He loves us, calls us to trust him, calls us to do what is right in any circumstance and empowers us to do that, to speak truthfully about others and about him. The rest of the reading from verses 13 through to 34 are also about trust, but but, uh, as it relates to what we rely on in life and particularly as it relates to money. 
So we've seen verses 13 to 21, the parable of the rich fool. Someone comes up to Jesus uh, and asks him a question that is clearly motivated by greed. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, verse 13. And then in uh, verse 15, this uh, request leads Jesus on to uh, uh, warn people about greed and then tell us a parable about greed. So he says in verse 15, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And as if to illustrate that point, he tells the parable of the rich fool, verses 16 to 21. This rich man, this big harvest, the hoarding of wealth into bigger barns, uh, hoping that he's going to be able to have a long, happy life, living off the, the, the profits of his uh, work, uh, and he'll be able to be full and drunk and merry, and then God says, you fool, and takes it all away. His life is over. His riches count for nothing. Now, it's interesting to consider passages like this as Western people because we live in a world uh, that says life is all about the, the abundance of possessions and collecting more and more and more. In fact, there's, there's, there's a part of me when I read the parable of the ritual, I think, I think Jesus might be describing like us, Western people. Because the fact of the matter is that you and I are wealthy people. I've got some slightly old figures. They're from 2015, but nonetheless, they're illustrative, I think, of where we'd still sit today. But uh, did you know that to be among the wealthiest half of the world, you simply need to have about just under four and a half thousand Australian dollars in net assets. Basically, if you've got a car in Australia, you're in the top 50% of the world's population. To be in the top 10% of the world's richest population, you need only around $92,000 in wealth. Now, CPI and stuff might make that a little bit more, but you get the idea, $100,000 in wealth, and you're in the top 10%. To be in the top percentile, you need only around a million, just over a million Australian dollars. And so if you happen to own the right house in this lovely suburb of Lindisfarne, you might be there. Top 1%. We are rich people. I would say everyone here is probably in the top 50. Certainly, maybe many of us in the top 10, perhaps a few in the top 1. And there's no problem with this whatsoever. There's no problem with wealth. This is the, 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 the parable of the, the rich fool is not that he was blessed with wealth. It was what he did with it and where his heart was. Look at what God condemns the man for in verses 20 and 21. God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. The man is condemned for his selfishness. He has hoarded his wealth 
and trusted in it to bring him a happy life. And he's had no thought of how to use this abundant wealth of his to be generous towards God, to put his money to work for God's kingdom. And that's what Jesus is encouraging us to do with this parable, isn't it? To be rich towards God, not to be selfish. It is so easy, isn't it, to be like the rich fool, to find security in our money, to trust in our money, to think if we just get a bit more money, then we'll be a bit more secure and we'll be able to be a bit more generous. But of course, if we're relying on our money and trusting in our money now, then when we get a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, we'll continue the same old pattern just with a heap more money. No matter whether you're in the bottom 1% or the top or anywhere in between, this parable is an encouragement to us to trust God, not money, and to steward our money generously for the good of God's kingdom and the welfare of others. I'll stop for a moment and just say thank you to those who do that. There are many in our church who give very generously to the work of God's kingdom in this place. I think that's a lived example of taking this parable on board. So, trust God, not man. Trust God, not money. Finally, verses 22 to 34, we see a little bit more of what this trust in God for all of our life looks like and I want to just finish as we look through at these final few verses Jesus says that to live our lives trusting God frees us from worry and fear because we are members of God's kingdom Jesus said to his disciples verse 22 I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Then he gives an example in verses 24 and 25 about birds and how even they have got enough to eat. And we can actually miss what's going on here uh, because these birds that Jesus talks about are, are unclean animals. They were like the lowest of the low. I think it's, it'd be better to think of Jesus saying at this point something like, consider the cockroach or consider the spider or whatever the animal that makes you kind of get the heebie-jeebies when you're thinking about it late at night, possibly being in your bed or falling on your face. Consider that animal, that disgusting disgusting thing that you can't wait to spray with thousands of litres of bug spray. Consider it. And consider how it has enough food to eat and is well looked after even though you can't see any reason for its existence. Even God looks after that. So God will look after you. God will look after you. When we try and take control of our lives, when we put our trust in our money or uh, in other people, then our lives become full of worry. What if the economy takes a dive? What if people betray me? 
But the opposite of worry is a simple faith and trust in God, who is in control of everything, who loves his children and who cares about them. Verse 32, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock. Deep words of care. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. A life built on trust in God looks like a life chasing after the kingdom of God with wholehearted devotion. Verse 31, seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Trusting God means valuing the work of God in the world more than anything else. It means being totally different from the world uh, in our values, what matters to us. It doesn't matter if people think, think we're good people. It doesn't matter if we have the right house, the right car, the right clothes. Instead, we must seek first the kingdom of God and let the rest of that stuff take care of itself as God takes care of us. And so Jesus finishes this section saying, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's clearly not saying give everything away so that you become poor and need someone else to give everything away so you can live. That doesn't make any logical sense. But what he's saying is sell those things and get rid of those things that have taken the place of God in your life. Get rid of whatever it is that you rely on instead of God. And, uh, and for most of us, that's going to be money. And be exceedingly generous. There's a lot in this, these 34 verses. But I got to thinking to myself, what would it be like for a church that was full of people who were really living this out well? I clear my, myself in, in, in the group of people who've got work to do in the things that Jesus calls us to in this passage. But what would it look like if we were a people who without fear proclaimed Jesus in every circumstance, who without fear confronted those people whom we had issues with and never spoke behind their backs, things we weren't prepared to say to their face. What would it look like to be a people who trusted God, not money, and gave generously, super generously, to the work of God because our hearts were truly planted in heaven? It'd be amazing. And we need to seek God and ask him to help show us where our trust is not in him. To turn our hearts to him and to ask him to make us the kind of people that this passage describes. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to this message today. I hope you're encouraged by God as he spoke to you by his Holy Spirit. 
please head to our website if you'd like more information about our church, www.lindisfarneanglican.org.au or like us on Facebook by searching Lindisfarne Anglican. We are a church for Lindisfarne, making disciples of Jesus. God bless you.